Does the technology to stop the worst of climate change already exist? And if it doesn't, can we afford to wait for it? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Technology has helped the world survive, thrive, and stay connected through the COVID pandemic. But does tech hold the same promise in the fight to solve climate change? It's not very clear to me that with the technologies that we have today, we can move into a world where 9, 10 billion people are living middle or upper middle class lives and we're still keeping emissions at a level that are sustainable. Valerie Shen is Chief Operating Officer at the venture capital firm G2VP. She'll join us later in the program, along with Michael Wilshire, Head of Strategy at Bloomberg NEF. First, a techie's view on climate tech. The robots we have today are fat, they're blind, they're stupid, and they're insensitive. Saul Griffith is founder and chief scientist of Other Lab, an independent R&D lab and co-author of a new report on rewiring America. His book Electrify is due out in the fall of 2021. We begin by thinking about whether the narrative of the past 50 years of increasing efficiency and reducing consumption has been effective in addressing the climate challenge. It has not been a narrative that uh, politically works terribly well, and it hasn't really changed our behaviors enormously. We still, in fact, average American homes have grown in size, vehicles have grown in size. So although the technology did make them more efficient, a lot of those efficiency wins we lost in, in growing bigger. Um, that narrative was born of the oil crisis. So that's when we first started the Department of Energy and the Energy Information Administration. And that original oil crisis problem was a supply problem. We were importing too much oil from the Middle East. That was about 10% of the American energy supply at that point. And so it was conceivably solvable with efficiency. If you got 10% more efficient cars and 10% more efficient homes, you would largely solve that problem. And that became the sort of the clean tech narrative. And we're still living that one down now uh, in climate change. But the climate change problem is, is, is different. We need to transform the entire energy system to be zero carbon. And you can't efficiency your way to zero unless we uh, give up a lot of the luxuries that people think are a human right, basically, at this point. Right. And that narrative is often seized upon as, you know, uh, people, you know, you can't fly an airplane. The Green New Deal is going to take away your hamburgers. You know, that narrative of of, of lesser sacrifices is, is easily preyed upon. And that's uh, but the alternative to that is sort of techno optimism. That's the no sacrifice narrative. Have it all and, and keep our home, too. Right. Is, is that narrative the one that you think that, that uh, will address climate change? I think that narrative is much closer to the narrative that can win. I think there are flaws in that narrative. Um, we could solve climate change, yet still destroy the oceans with plastics, for example. Um, I think we can have a very positive conversation that says we can have most of what we have and life will improve. I think you can say that absolutely with a state, straight face while solving climate change. And we do have solutions today ready to go that will completely decarbonize the United States and have people living roughly in the same, driving the same size cars, living in the same sized houses, but just doing it with much better technology that already exists um, to enable that. that. 
know, there's often a debate now, particularly, you know, in the Democratic Party of like going big, Green New Deal. You know, there's sort of was it an, uh, some competition on ambition among the Democratic candidates in the primaries last year with, you know, trillions of dollars escalating plans far bigger than before. Um, so is this a time for big ambition or should we start with what's politically possible in a politically divided country? Quite frankly, we only have one choice, which is to go big. If we wish to meet what the earth would like us to do and what the best scientists and earth scientists agree is the, is the target we should hit, which is one and a half to two degrees, we have to go even bigger in some respects than the, the Green New Deal and the climate plans um, that we've heard of, because basically in the early 2000s, we started to bake into the um, United Nations climate models negative emissions. Uh, that they may not happen, so we should. That sort of shortens our timeline. We also don't really build into those climate models what's called committed emissions. So they're the emissions that machines that already exist today will continue to emit, to emit throughout their lifetime. So you know, if we built a natural gas power plant ten years ago, you know that thing is naturally going to live another four years. If you bought a car last year, you don't want to sell that car right away. You want to get ten more years out of it. And the fuels that all of those machines that already exist, or the emissions that they will emit while burning fuels in their lifetime, already take us over one and a half degrees. So what, is, what does that really mean? The only way to hit a target under two degrees, which I firmly believe is what we should do, uh, is to, as quickly as possible, ramp up our production of the solution technologies such that we can then deploy them at what's called a 100% adoption rate, meaning you know, last year in California, I think it was about 10% of vehicles sold were electric, and it was, it was about 2% nationally. We need to make that number 100% as soon as possible. It needs to be not just true for electric vehicles. It needs to be true for the heating systems in our homes. It needs to be true for our new power plants. So all new power plants need to be solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, or something that doesn't emit carbon. And we need that to happen immediately. So... In some respects, it's not about politically possible. It's about what's technically necessary. But I think for the first time ever in human history, I think we can now tell you a story that the technology is there. And more so than the technology, it's now down to the politics and the financing um, that, that could actually make a future come true where we get to live our lives, have cheaper energy and do it with zero carbon. And we can do it on the timeline required to beat two degrees. But it does require incredible political commitment and something that quite honestly looks like a World War II level of effort in terms of our industrial base. Right. And I've been hearing that you know, Pearl Harbor moment for, for, for more than a decade, frankly, you know, uh, the idea that there, we need a Pearl Harbor kind of mobilization uh, like the U.S. did in World War II, where the government comes in and says, motor companies, you're not making cars, you're making planes, tanks, we're making, you know, merchant marine ships, that sort of thing. Uh, the difference was, though, that, you know, there was a, a villain with a human face with an intent to do harm. Now, in this narrative, we don't have a villain with a human face and intent to do harm. We're all complicit. So that mobilization is a lot harder when you don't have a Hitler and a Mussolini to go after. Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally am motivated by the Hitler or Mussolini of the, of the species we will lose and the, the damage to ecosystems and the human tragedy that will unfold. But I recognize that that won't get everyone to come along for the ride. Um, so really, I, I, and I think you know, this is what I write about a lot these days, the exciting thing is 
we can now tell a story that everyone, if they come along for that ride, will have better health outcomes. They'll have cheaper energy. Driving will be cheaper. And, you know, it's not exactly we can have our cake and eat it too. But, you know, if we do it right and we get the financing policy right, it will save everyone money. And so this, the, uh, the unfortunate thing about the Green New Deal was it sounded like a competition to spend the most money. In some respects, that is a result, oddly, of the way we count jobs that get created. So when economists try to create jobs, they ask you, how much money do you spend? Um, and then they divide that by the number of jobs created in an industry per millions of dollars spent. And so part of the Green New Deal was an effort to advertise enormous numbers of jobs because jobs are great. People want to want jobs. And that's even more important now in the COVID world. But it can lead you to then just talk about the top line expense. It's going to cost $25 trillion. Uh, that creates 25 million jobs. But it scares people off because it sounds like it's going to cost money. If you do a more nuanced calculation about household energy costs and what happens if we get battery prices and solar regulations and electric vehicles deployed and then financed at good low interest rates, you can actually start to tell a story about how every household saves money, every state saves money, and you know the whole country annually will save money um, on the finance cost of this transition versus the costs that we spend today on fossil fuels. And as you look at the magnitude of the transformation that needs to happen and the math, and you go deep, you're a MacArthur uh, genius you, winner, you go deep into the, the science and math of this. How scared are you? Uh, I've been scared about climate and the magnitude of change that's been required for 10 or 20 years. Uh, in that period, I have had two children. So I have a six-year-old and 11-year-old. And you can no longer afford fear once you have skin in the game like that. And as absurd as what as it may sound that, you know, we will achieve that thing, it was absurd to believe that we would achieve defeating Hitler when, you know, at the beginning of that war, America had basically no airplanes. They had to use ice cream trucks for war games in the American army in 1939. So we had no equipment, but we did it because we had to. And I think we will solve climate change because we have to. And I think Basically, we're now arguing about whether we do it sooner or later, and I'm an enormous advocate, and I've just started an organization called Rewiring America with a colleague, Alex Lasky, who, who started OPower and has done a lot of work with the utility industry, and we firmly believe that we can bring that timeline forward a long way now with the right mix of technology, policy, and finance. And one of the things that comes up, there's technology, policy, finance, there's also individual action. So there's a debate here about individual action matters. It's important for credibility, moral clarity, not to be a hypocrite. Others say that individual action is trivial, can even lead to dangerous feel-good illusion that you're solving a problem if you go vegan or recycle or buy an electric car. So where do you come down on the role of individual action? Is it necessary and insufficient or is it a distraction? I think it is virtuous and I applaud everyone who takes individual actions, but numerically, it just doesn't do it. You can't buy enough stainless steel water bottles. You can't recycle enough packaging. You can't take enough public transport to solve climate change. Um, I've actually started to see this as a question of infrastructure. So the 20th century version or definition of infrastructure, you conjure in your mind, bridges and roadways and dams and large public works projects. And they bake into the world a way of being and a way of life. It's the same with your own personal life. I now 
the transformations you need to do to decarbonize are a small number of things that are really infrastructure. They're decisions that you make once every 10 years. If you make those decisions correctly, you can then just go about living your life not emitting any carbon. If you make those decisions badly, you continue to emit carbon. Now, the challenge for that means you can't decarbonize your life with your daily purchasing decisions. You can have your anxiety sitting in the tuna aisle at the um, looking at the 45 different tins of tuna and trying to figure out which one killed the fewest dolphins, but that makes a very tiny impact on our emissions. The real decisions that count are, what do you drive? Can that be powered by zero carbon electrons? Is there solar on, the, on your roof? Is the heating and cooling systems in your house driven by electricity? Is that electricity supplied by zero carbon sources? So it's about your furnace, it's about your water heater, it's about your car, it's about your rooftop. And they're the things that as individuals we control. And from the household decisions that we can control, that's roughly 40, a little more than 40% of all US emissions. But if businesses have the same approach to thinking about it as infrastructure and, and government and industry, then we can solve this. And you're a fan of the Energy Star program. One thing you didn't mention was refrigerators. There's been some policy uh, advances to... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to caveat. Uh, I, you said I'm a fan of Energy Star. I think you can't not like Energy Star. It's an efficiency program, but it doesn't really get us to our end goal. So Energy Star program and the cafe fuel standards, these are the 1970s thinking that gives us the efficiency dialogue. So ever slowly and ever increase your your mileage per gallon, slowly increase your efficiencies in refrigerators. Unfortunately, some of the efficiencies in refrigerators were lost by the growing waistline of American refrigerators. But you can't efficiency your way to zero. So in the case of vehicles, we got to skip a step and not go from 40 to 45 miles per gallon, but go from 40 miles per gallon to fully electric driven by solar, wind, geothermal, nuclear, hydro. The biggest efficiency measure there is by far is the act of electrification and driving those electrons with renewable generation. And honestly, if we do that, you can double the size of your refrigerators and we will still fix climate change. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about technology and the climate emergency. Coming up, more with inventor and entrepreneur Saul Griffith and others on whether climate tech is ready for prime time. There's always a cautionary story about taking one example of a failed company and using that as a proof point that we shouldn't invent new technologies. My team doesn't feel that we necessarily have the expertise to be investing in some of these risks, but I don't think that that necessarily means no one should be doing it. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about technology as a climate solution. Clean tech was all the rage in Silicon Valley about a decade ago. But after a while, investors realized that engineering heavy machinery or innovative chemicals took a long time, and a return on their investment could take years longer than the latest hit software or app. And then there are the failures. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer spoke to Paul Geip, editor of windworks.org, about a failed wind company that offers a cautionary tale. In 2010, Urban Green Energy blasted out press releases about its new small wind turbines for homes and businesses. The New York City-based company had offices in London and Beijing. Paul Geip had already written four books about wind energy. 
and what he saw immediately made him a skeptic. Urban green energy burst on the scene with this concept of putting vertical axis wind turbines on rooftops. They made a lot of outlandish claims, as these companies do, for example, that the wind turbines will be silent, the wind turbines won't kill birds, that they'll have high production and low winds. Wind turbines don't produce a lot of electricity in low winds. That's just the physics of how wind turbines work. And they put these wind turbines in very highly visible locations, not just one, two, inside the Eiffel Tower. Urban green energy got a lot of press. At this time, Geip says solar was still expensive, so lots of people were excited about the possibility of personal wind power everywhere, even on their homes. But there was a problem with the science. Rooftop wind energy using small wind turbines doesn't work because there's not a lot of wind on top of buildings in the city. It might seem that because a building is tall that it's in the wind, but no, you need a tower that's probably half the height of the building to get the wind turbine up above the turbulence caused by the building. So you still have to have a tower. The other reason is that small wind turbines, because of the nature of the technology, don't have the economies of scale as those giant wind turbines you see in Kansas or here in California. Some of the small wind turbines we put on rooftops have consumed more electricity than they've generated, which of course is not the point. By 2016, the hype had faded. Urban Green Energy sold its wind business to a Chinese company and shifted its focus to solar. In the grand scheme of scandals, frauds, and flakes, Urban Green Energy and these rooftop wind turbines really are small potatoes. It's embarrassing. It detracts from the growth of wind energy. It detracts from the usefulness that we see in renewable energy. It feeds the criticism by those on the far right and in the fossil fuel and nuclear industry say, ah, see, wind energy doesn't work. The lesson, Guype says, is we should be focusing on what we know works, not chasing profitable moonshots to solve climate change. I'm not a big fan of uh, putting money into super duper new technology because I've been chronicling the failures of that. What I am a big fan of is we have the technology today. And if you want to make money in renewable energy, it's not a new invention. It's deploying it now. That is building wind turbines and solar panels, geothermal power plants, uh, biogas digesters. I mean, there's so many things that we as Americans could be doing right now and should have been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. And so most of the time I see people who are trying to get rich quick in renewable energy fail. In fact, when inventors call me, I try to advise them that what they're trying to do is probably a mistake. And if you want to make a difference, invest in that technology now to deploy it, get it out there. That was Paul Guype, an energy analyst and editor of windwords.org. I'm pleased now to welcome two guests to our conversation about technology and climate change, Valerie Shen from Silicon Valley and Michael Wilshire from London. Valerie is chief operating officer of G2VP, a venture capital firm that spun out of the white shoe firm Kleiner Perkins, and she previously held positions at McKinsey & Company and Goldman Sachs. Michael Wilshire is head of strategy at BNEF. For two decades, he advised corporate clients at McKinsey & Company and began his career working at Britain's Department of Energy. Valerie, I'd like to get your response to Paul Guype's points that climate change should involve deployment of proven technology rather than newfangled inventions. He's suspicious of the get-rich schemes that are what many startups bring to VCs like you. Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting point. 
and in some ways aligns a lot with how we work at G2VP, which is that we think there are a lot of great companies that exist in the world that are deploying technologies that already work in ways that are sustainable, profitable, make our lives better, and somehow contribute to solving the climate change crisis. We absolutely believe that there are a lot of great investments in this space and they make a huge difference. So at face value, I agree with a lot of what he says. I will say there's always a cautionary story, though, about taking one example of a failed company and using that as a proof point that we shouldn't invent new technologies, right? Because it's not very clear to me that with the technologies that we have today, we can move into a world where 9, 10 billion people are living middle or upper middle class lives and we're still keeping emissions at a level that are sustainable. Unless there's a 100% clear path to that, we should be inventing new technologies. My team doesn't feel that we necessarily have the expertise to be investing in those new technologies, so we're not investing in some of these risks, but I don't think that that necessarily means no one should be doing it. Michael Wilshire, your thoughts on whether we just need to deploy all, if we deploy everything that we have, we can get this done, or do we need new innovation? I hear both things all the time. Yeah, I think actually it's both. Um, I think the um, sort of incremental innovation we've seen in established energy technologies and things like storage are very important because that's what's driven the cost down. Um, there's a strong learning curve, curve effect from experience. So every time the um, volume of solar that's installed has doubled, costs have come down by about 28.5%. And that's an incredible dynamic because you start to get you know, increasing uh, momentum, the costs come down, the economics improve more, gets installed and the costs come down still further. And we've seen that with um, definitely with solar, we've seen it with wind, we're also seeing it with storage. So I do agree that investing in the technologies and pushing them and, and gaining that momentum is, is absolutely critical. At the same time, we're seeing new challenges emerge. Um, we're seeing challenges around how do you integrate renewables in the, into the systems. So some very interesting technologies around for example, virtual power plants, where you can aggregate assets that provide flexibility services back to the grid and enable you to integrate those renewable technologies. Um, and equally, there are some areas that are really important, like the so-called hard to abate sectors. So some of the process industries like, um, for example, steel, cement, um, ways of recycling. Uh, we're seeing a lot of innovation around, around that. We actually run at BNF um, a competition called BNF Pioneers. We've been doing it now for 11 years, looking for you know, innovative, relatively early stage companies that we believe and our external judges believe can have a real impact on the energy and related systems. And interesting, actually, three of them sort of fall, uh, who are the, uh, of the 10 winners this year, fall into that category. One, one's doing um, recycling with plastics using going right back to the fundamental oils. So it's not just about chopping up plastics and heating them. It's actually going back to the fundamental oils to produce virgin quality plastic as you, as you would from a petrochemical process. Um, another is a company called Boston Metal that's got a uh, different technology for producing steel. Um, typically in a steel furnace, uh, a blast furnace, you can throw in a lot of coal. The coal heats it up and it also acts as a an agent for removing the ox oxygen off the iron oxide. That creates a lot of CO2, firstly by burning the coal, and secondly by removing the oxygen, which comes off in the form of CO2. And they're using a, a molten uh, oxide electrolysis process that is carbon free. Um, early stage company, but if that you know, succeeds and takes off in, in a big way, that could have a, re a revolutionary effect on, on the steel industry. 
And you know, other examples I could give you in areas like cement as well. So I think that new type of innovation around some of these you know, new problems that we still have to solve is, is, is also very important. Saul Griffith, Valerie Shen mentioned kind of the math, the global math of nine or 10 billion people living like people do listening to this radio show and podcast. That's, that, does that math, even with you know, better cement, better steel, all the things we've been talking about, does that math still add up? Nine billion people living like Americans? No. It's funny, Michael mentions blast furnace. My first job out of college, or actually I was still in college, was cleaning the carbon off the sides of a blast furnace at BHP Steel Mills in Newcastle. Um, we can improve the life of a population of 8 to 10 billion from what we do today, uh, absolutely. And the great majority, I'd say at least 85% of that problem, we have technologies today that can do it. The future we want actually exists today. And as the, as Neil Stevenson or some science fiction writer wrote, it's just not equally distributed. But what it, what that really means in this case is it's not happening in one geographic location. So it's an easy story to tell that story, solar, wind, electric vehicles for Australia, Canada, New Zealand, America, um, well-resourced countries with medium low and medium population densities some of africa uh, southern europe but not western europe but when places get colder when the population density goes up that's where we do need some breakthroughs either in very long distance transmission so they're importing energy as electrons or hydrogen or we need nuclear in those places because there's just literally not enough space to put the the renewable resources and you know to answer your question will everyone live like americans Probably not. I don't think a lot of people want to, to be quite, quite frank. Um, those countries that already do, which is, you know, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, they won't give up. Um, acute fact, Europe has believed that they're better at fighting climate change than Americans forever. Actually, it's really just an artifact of history. Their cities, cities are more dense and their cities are closer together. So they have less transportation and their, and their heating systems are more efficient. They're roughly the same. So all of those people can roughly make it work out. So I, I actually have optimism that for the large bulk of this problem, we can do it with technology we have on the table. We still need to solve the problems that are one, two, three, four, five percent problems. These are, you know, the 1% problem, which is steel, the 1% problem, which is aluminum, the 7% problem, which is emissions from refrigerants for our air conditioners. Uh, we need to fix cement. Cement's a three or 4% problem. And then agriculture is the remainder of our problem, another 5 to 10%, depending on how big you draw the circle around agriculture. Those things, we do need new technology solutions. But as Michael mentioned, there are companies working on all of those problems, and I think there's promising. But let's work on the 85% that we know we can solve today. And, you know, that becomes the World War II industrial effort. And then the Manhattan Project is these remainder technologies that we need to round out fully decarbonizing. If you're just joining us, we're talking about technology and climate change in the COVID era with Saul Griffith, founder and chief scientist at Other Lab, an independent R&D lab, and Valerie Shen, chief operating officer at G2VP, venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, and Michael Wilshire, head of strategy at BNF, joining us from London. I want to pick up on mobility. Uh, that's one thing that's been disrupted a lot during this COVID times. People commuting patterns changing, work patterns changing. Uh, Valerie Shen, how is commuting going to change? And and how does that, you know, some carpooling technologies you're investing in that you claim could be cheaper than Uber and Lyft. 
I'm concerned, a lot of people are concerned that people are going to hop in their cars, they're not going to take transit, we're going to have clogged freeways and single occupancy vehicles, we have this hellscape of mobility potentially coming at us. It's a great question, super relevant now given COVID. What we've been seeing for almost a decade at this point, even before any of the recent health concerns, has been really what we call an unbundling of the car, right? So in the past, we had one car that we owned. It was an internal combustion vehicle. We would use it to get from point to point, go to a gas station. And we've really now been getting transportation from other means. So this started with Uber chipping away at the need to own a car and use that for every purpose. It also means that you can have companies such as Turo, one of our old portfolio companies that lets you rent a car easily on a daily basis. So instead of needing to have a minivan and a commuter car, you can just have one car that meets the bulk of your needs and have a shared vehicle for other parts of your life that are just more niche. It also means that we now have last mile transit opportunities where you can take scooters for shorter errands around town and not need to you know, have a discrete choice between a car versus walking. And the reason that public transportation fits into all of this is that it's just getting better over time, cleaner, quieter, and cheaper. So electric buses have 80% cheaper operating costs than uh, diesel vehicles, right? Which means that a lot of times cities are starting to think about making their public transportation free, which really changes the game for consumers who now no longer have to think about having their public transit card and can just hop on the shuttle whenever they need. And what we're seeing overall is that transportation becomes much of a communal solution where people are thinking about all the different ways they're going to piece together their needs and not just default to a vehicle. Then we come into this question of what does COVID do to all of this? And in the very beginning, we thought that no one was going to use electric scooters or any sort of shared transportation, but we're now seeing that people have sort of you know, had their few months of freak out and now are getting back to normal life in many contexts. One of our companies that you mentioned, Greg, is Scoop, which is a ride-sharing company often doing carpools for work. And the idea there with Scoop is if you can share a ride with one coworker, friend, even if it's a stranger, to get from your home to the office, it's a much cheaper form of transportation than actually taking a taxi or any sort of ride share because you're driving with someone who is anyway going that direction. So from a carbon emissions perspective, you're also not creating an additional trip. You're actually saving on the total amount of transit and you have clear contact tracing. So in a COVID world, you're not going to wonder, you know, who are the eight, 10, 15 people who have ridden in this car. You just have one person that you're riding with to work one person you're riding back from work. And we think there's a lot of potential for creative solutions like this, overall helping to make sure that we are not all dependent on our individual vehicles. Michael, we'll show it's been about 10 years since uh, electric cars were available uh, in, in California, United States. Uh, we've heard Saul talk about 10% of California sales. What's the, the path forward for electrifying uh, personal mobility? How quickly can electric cars scale? And when will they be cheaper to buy than gasoline internal combustion cars? It varies a lot from country to country. But on average, if you look at it at a global level, um, we're expecting roughly 10% of new sales to be electric vehicles by 2025. Um, going up to close to 30% by 2030, about 28%, I think, um, and 58% by uh, 2050. And in some countries, that, that's of new sales, by the way, that's not vehicles on the roads. So obviously, vehicles on the road will be um, somewhat lower because you have to, it takes time to replenish. 
Um, in some countries, though, those figures would be even higher. So that's an average. And, and, and generally, for example, in Europe, we're expecting Europe to um, adopt particularly fast. Um, in terms of your question about, you know, when is it as cheap to buy an electric vehicle um, as a conventional combust combustion engine vehicle? Um, pretty soon, actually, we're expecting price parity by the mid 2020s in most segments. Um, earlier in Europe than some parts of the world like India and Japan, primarily actually because the cost of vehicles is quite low in India. So, you know, it's it's harder to compete for an electric vehicle coming in against a low lower cost vehicle. A lot of that's being driven by um, reductions in battery prices. So that's been one of the largest cost elements within an electric vehicle. Um, so driving down the cost of batteries and getting those experience curve effects. Uh, through volume has been a very important part of that story and will be into the future. We have a question from Laura listening. She asks, how much money would the average American household save if it went all electric? And what would it cost to do that? And how would you pay for it? Saul, you're writing a book okay. on Electrify Everything. Let's segue that question to a little bit of Michael's answer. In 2018, AAA, the American Automobile Bill Association, not exactly a bastion of green thinking, published that the cost of ownership for mid-size electric vehicles was lower than the cost of ownership of internal combustion engines. If you're buying gasoline at $3 a gallon, you're paying in some respects about 15 cents to 20 cents per mile of transportation. If you're buying electricity at 10 cents a kilowatt hour and you're putting in that into an electric car, you're paying about 3 cents per mile. So it's already economically sound to electrify your car if you can afford the upfront capital cost of the electric vehicle. Now, you know, 10 years ago, the upfront cost of an electric vehicle was $100,000 for Tesla. Um, now you can buy a whole lot of options between $25,000 and $40,000, and those options pencil cheaper than the $20,000 to $30,000 ICE, provided that you can finance the initial expense. So I think we are already there, and it is only going to get cheaper. And once they're actually at price parity, at the dealership floor, the story is even better again. What does that translate into for the average American home? We actually just ran numbers for every state using historical, you know, I can now tell you how many miles people in Connecticut drive versus how many miles people in Wyoming drive per year and convert those into gasoline, cost of running those things in gasoline versus electric. And most homes would save you know, over a thousand dollars if they could use, you know, if you could conjure up the price of Australian solar on rooftop, which we know is possible, and you could power your electric vehicles off that, and you could finance the electric vehicles at reasonable rates, you'd be saving a thousand dollars or more a year in spite of the higher upfront cost of that vehicle. And for the whole home, you'd be saving, you know, again, this it does require a mix of policy, a mix of finance, and a mix of the technology. But if we get all of those things right, the average American family could probably save close to $2,000 a year on the costs of energy. $65,000 is the after-tax expenditures of the average American home. Roughly three dollars or $6,000 worth of that is being spent on energy, meaning their gasoline, their natural gas, and their electricity. And we could reduce that substantially you know, if we truly commit to this transmission. And I think we, we need to do that for climate reasons. In a COVID world, we need to do it for job reasons. In a post-COVID world, we need to do it for economic reasons. So I'm advocating that we could go much, much faster than Michael has suggested. I agree, the industry trends are on track for what he said, but we need to, we need to do better and we can do better. And I believe that we will do better as people start to realize that the economics can work today. 
You're listening to a conversation about addressing climate change with technology. This is Climate One. Coming up, finding new ways to put existing technology to work. AI is a good example where one technology that's actually been around for 50 years, but not used until recently because the power wasn't there, actually crossing over and hitting um, sectors like the energy sector that we're, we're talking about today. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about technology and climate change with Saul Griffith, founder and chief scientist of the independent R&D outfit Other Lab. Valerie Shen, chief operating officer at the venture capital firm G2VP. And Michael Wilshire, head of strategy at Bloomberg NEF. Digital technologies had a transformational impact on many industries, including energy, as Michael explains. The energy system is a fairly complex uh, system to optimize, and things like renewable integration um, and all the assets that now hang off the network, everything from PV panels to storage assets, make it much more dispersed and much more difficult to um, actually monitor, control, and optimize. So we're seeing technologies um, which are being used by virtual power plant providers, for example, for aggregating those assets and then using AI or other machine learning techniques to um, optimize them because AI is, is good, good at optimizing com complex systems, one of the things it can be used for. Um, and then we're seeing digital technologies being used for everything from preventative maintenance to remote monitoring to asset inspection. Um, interestingly, actually, in the current environment where it hasn't been so easy to go in and monitor plants um, because of COVID, um, you know, those, those technologies have come even more to the fore because it has been necessary to have en engineers, for example, op operating remotely. Um, so I think, you know, just as it's transformed other um, industries, it, it will, will have a big impact, is having a big Im impact on the energy industry. The only other point I'd make actually quickly on, on innovation is I think it's not linear. There's something about innovation that it, the cycle of innovation is speeding up and you're getting one sort of innovation feeding into another, another. So if you take, for example, what's happened in the semiconductor industry, um, the advances that were made in semiconductors allowed you to design new semiconductors even better because you have more processing power um, to do that and more tools to do it with. So you've got a sort of accelerating cycle of innovation there. And you also have crossover technologies. AI is a good example where one technology that's actually been around for 50 years, but not used until recently because the power wasn't there, actually crossing over and hitting um, sectors like the energy sector that we're, we're talking about today. So I think we shouldn't think of innovation as something that's you know, incremental and gradual. I think it's actually something that's speeding up. And that's a very important message, I think, for the, for the future. Saul, where are the big promising areas? You have an innovation lab, you advise corporations. Where are, where are the big opportunities for innovation that perhaps don't get as enough attention as they might deserve? This is a fun question. I mean, my day job is being at the bleeding, losing money edge of innovation, <laughs> doing shoot, you know, moonshot science projects with the Farm Energy. And we've done actually successful projects that we've turned into successful technology in, in wind, in solar, in, in hydrogen, in storage, uh, currently working on air conditioning, which is, you know, 15% of global emissions. We're working on energy storage, thermal energy storage, which is potentially a hugely cheap battery. I think all of those things are important. I think it's not hugely appreciated, but we probably should be able to make the solar cells that we're deploying 30% efficient instead of 20% efficient. That would completely change the game. You've got to keep an eye on fusion. Can't be ruled out. It's not really going to be impactful on the time frame of what we need for climate change. Um, 
I think it's the material economy that is really exciting. So that's the steel, the aluminum, the cement, agriculture. Uh, and there's a huge number of things there. It's been largely ignored because of, you know, the returns were in software and then in other things for the last 20, 30 years. So we, we have neglected those things that sound a little less exciting. But to touch what Michael said, um, he said digitalization and um, it is unbelievably important and way more exciting and way more interesting and way more important than I think people appreciate. So if we are truly decarbonize, we really only have a pathway that the majority of our energy will be electricity. Um, the biggest gorilla in the room slowing down the real action and infrastructure changes we need uh, are honestly the utility players that are, are very scared of this very renewables heavy world managing all of these loads and all of these assets that are some of them are behind the meter, meaning you own them, some of them are their assets. And that's what this digitalization means to me is man managing this. We, we had the notion of net neutrality, which was let's keep the internet neutral so that small players can compete just as well as big players. And that was largely true until a couple of years ago. We're now starting to maybe un unroll that, which I think is a bad idea. But what maybe while we rebuild net neutrality, I think the even more important thing is that we need to fight for a world of grid neutrality where the utilities are not the gatekeepers there'll still be tons of room for them to make an enormous amount of profit. Even if you do all of the energy you can behind the meter on solar on rooftops, they'll still get to deliver two or three times as much as energy. So they should be signing up and going all in because what they really need to do is access the 250 million electric vehicles in people's driveways so they can manage their renewables. They need to be able to access the, the thermal systems in those homes, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can balance all this and it will be seamlessly done with computers. We know how it's a less complicated system in many respects than building something like the internet. And I think this is hugely exciting. I think we'll see dozens of startups do interesting things in this space. And quite frankly, it's this is probably the most important moonshot in fixing climate change. We just need to agree that this is the big barrier to making everything easy and connectable and to make all the loads balance and we should go after it. This is something that is amenable, given what we learned building the internet over the last decades. I think we can solve this problem in a decade and make it all work, and I think it's hugely exciting. Veli uh, Shen, you worked as a consultant to the oil and gas industry. What did you learn working for them about how to disrupt those sectors with new, cleaner technologies and investments? Yeah, I think that an interesting learning there and for context, I was working at McKinsey serving clients across various industries, including oil and gas, not specifically trying to work with these industries. But I think the goal of these people is not necessarily to try and destroy the planet. And it's not that, you know, clean tech is fighting against oil and gas, but rather everyone is trying to work towards the same goals of building strong companies without necessarily destroying our environment. Right. So what we learned was that a lot of these people are just working in institutions that are hard to change. And if you want to try and sell new technologies into the oil and gas sector, you don't necessarily work in the same way that you would sell to you know, young people who are trying to change the world, but rather you're having to work within these institutions and they're also having to work within tons of policies and restrictions that they have. So I felt that understanding how they work is very beneficial towards trying to run clean tech companies in the future. Michael Wilshire, there's a lot of power in the fossil fuel kind of incumbent industries. They have a lot of favorable policies, tax treatments. They've had a century uh, putting them in place that some clean tech energies uh, companies would say they don't have. Your view on you know, the role of 
oil, oil and gas companies. You worked in helping privatize those companies under Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Your, your view on their role now in this climate emergency? A bit like Valerie, I think you can't sort of paint it as too much of a dichotomy between the fossil fuel guys and the um, and the renewable guys. I think um, you know there are a lot of people in in those companies who are trying to do you know good things and indeed are moving their companies in more of the direction of, of renewables and a clean, cleaner future. I um, talk to those people and they want their companies to move faster. There are, you know, greenies yeah. inside the, the super major oil companies and they're they're the internal champions trying to, to prod the giant to go faster. The question, I think, is whether the incentives, they make so much money, they don't have to pay the price of their pollution. The, the economic incentives are not for them to go faster. The economic incentives are for them to milk the coal and gas as long as they can. Well, up to a point that, you know, just in today's newspapers, there were there were reports of um, oil companies saying, well, actually, we're going to have a lot of assets that are, you know, on our books, as it were, which we're not necessarily going to exploit. Or should we continue to do exploration in, in the world we're now in, where we see more clean energy and we see much lower oil prices? So I think it is changing in the core business as well, or the old core business, perhaps, I should say. So Griffiths, as we get to the end here, your view on on fossil fuel companies because there are innovators. They sometimes dabble in in clean energy. They you know they they green lots. They'll buy some solar here. They'll dabble in some biofuels there. But when it comes to the policy realm, they're pretty much got their foot firmly placed on the brakes of a transition away from fossil energy that has higher margins for them, and they have got a lot of capital sucked in that they want to monetize first before they do something else. Let's not pretend that there have been agents for good. Uh, let's also acknowledge that the changes in the prices of fuels because of COVID and demand have made their margins go negative. Let's also acknowledge that in a world where we completely go zero carbon, the price of all fossil fuels goes to zero So, because no one's going to be using them. So then you have this free thing that's, or the, the marginal cost of extraction, you've got this very cheap thing competing with the new thing. I think we just have to very frankly say all of those things up front. And I think the, 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 the real insight came to me is realizing that these, these fossil companies are not really energy companies, as you imagine. They're logistics and financing companies. They're banks. They don't really own the majority of the operations. Other people do the, a lot of the finding for them. A lot of people do the refining for them, the transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they do is, is do the financing. Um, and Unfortunately, they have a huge amount of assets that they've already banked upon. What they are, they use their proven reserves to finance their next oil well hole. That that has been something we've been doing since the late nineteenth century. So you don't have enough capital to drill the next hole. So you say, "I've got this production for my last one. Loan me the capital to do the next one." Those proven reserves are the eighty thousand pound carbon dioxide gorilla in the room, um, because that the value of those things are already baked into the stock prices and, and the values of these fossil fuel companies. We need to figure out a mechanism where they get to elegantly wind those things down and they become the banks that finance the clean energy re uh, revolution that we need. If that doesn't happen, if we will fight all the way down and we'll take everyone down. So I believe the grand political bargain we need is to figure out how to embrace these companies and absolve them of some of that the thing that they're truly scared of which is their um their stranded assets their proven reserves and figure out how to get them and they're very competent you know they have the most experience in the at scale energy industry in the world they have the most people 
who know how to do maintenance of all the types of systems we need to build out for the clean energy system too. And they certainly know how to do energy financing and we need to engage them at a front seat at the table. And if they won't take that front seat at the table, we just need to put them on notice and beat them senseless at lower prices. <laughs> uh, I do think that, yeah, the COVID thing has has them um, as a shock, external shock that none of them saw coming. Uh, one more question from a listener. John says, what is the environmental impact of lithium mining in comparison to conventional collection of oil? As an EV driver, I get a lot of questions about the impact of the batteries. Uh, and I have a relative who went to a lithium factory and said, you think your car is clean? You haven't been to a lithium factory. That is dirty business. Saul Griffith, lithium versus gasoline. There is no perfect option here. Um, lithium largely comes from salt flats and depositions over a long period of time. There's a huge lithium reserve just outside Los Angeles. There's a huge amount in South America. Those ecosystems that won the geological lottery to house lithium, we, we will need to do extractive mining there to, to do that and need to put a lot of energy into producing those things. But it is a better option, and it is an option that won't see climate run away from us than oil and the all of the problems from the oil industry, from carbon dioxide to the um, oil spills like the one in Mauritius that we're seeing right now to destabilization of uh, geological features with all the fracking revolution. Um, Lithium is imperfect. Cobalt, which is another critical component of the, the clean tech industry, we need new options rather than mining that in destabilized countries in West Africa. So all of these things we need to wrestle with. But quite frankly, right now, they're our only options and they're a better option than the incumbent and they shouldn't be used as excuses for not doing it. And we should embrace them, do them at scale, but look for the next generation thing that will replace those. What are the battery chemistries that come after these things? What are the inputs to the um, solar that come after these things. And, you know, it's an often lean on argument that we need to put this one to rest. They, they are a cleaner and better option. Uh, lower proportion of our energy system will be dedicated to supplying energy to our energy system if we go all renewable. Um, but it is a tricky question and I think it is absolutely valid and we should be concerned and we should endeavor to do all of the mining activities related to all of those things the best way we possibly can. We've been talking about technology and the climate emergency with Saul Griffith, founder and chief scientist at OtherLab and author of the forthcoming book, Electrify. Valerie Shen, chief operating officer at the venture capital firm G2VP. And joining us from London, Michael Wilshire, head of strategy at Bloomberg NEF. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.